for the adult class, we are we are studying the Sabbath day, the fourth commandment. We have been using chapter 21 of the Confession of Faith to help us in our study of that uh, subject. Um, we are thankful that the Lord's given us this day that we are to worship Him and to both publicly and privately. Um, we tend to look at the fourth commandment and think of it, of, of it as a burden, but John tells us in First John that the commandments of God are not a burden for those who love Him. So as we continue this, this study for the next few Sunday school uh, times, Let's really work hard at looking at what the Bible te- looking at what the Bible teaches concerning the fourth commandment as a blessing from the Lord, as a gift to help us grow in Him. Uh, the Bible teaches us that there is still a rest remaining for God's people, and that the, this future rest is signified and celebrated in the Christian Sabbath, and today. It will likely be a shorter lesson because I wanted to focus on one thing and one thing only. And it is a bit of a technical point, so I wanted to leave enough time for whatever questions. And then, um, time allowing, whatever other questions you may have concerning what we've been studying uh, about the Sabbath, uh, you, you can ask at that time. But I'd love for you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4. So. We're going to spend our time today in this chapter, Hebrews chapter 4. Some of the most precious, precious truths that God's given us uh, take work for us to see in the Bible. Uh, I think we sometimes uh, fall into the trap that, uh, it, you know, it has to be easily seen to be true, uh, but that's not a good philosophy of uh, studying the Bible. Uh, It's not that it has to be easily seen to be true. God has to have said it to be true, even if it's difficult to see and difficult to uh, accept. So here we have in Hebrews chapter 4, we introduced it last week, and uh, we looked at the general context. So we're going to come and look at the primary context, but we're going to read verses 1 through 10 as we begin today, because that's the passage we're going to be leading, looking, at, looking at this morning. So Hebrews 4, starting verse 1, it says, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest, as he has said, So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way. And God resisted on the seventh day, from all, not resisted, but he rested. <laughs> and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, 
and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. Again, he designates a certain day, saying, In David, today after such a long time, as it has been said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God, for he who has entered his rest has himself also seized from his works, as God did from his. The idea of rest in this passage was introduced back in chapter 3, verse 11, when the author of Hebrews, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, quoted Psalm 95, verse 11, and then he repeats that again in chapter three, verse chapter four, verse three, where he again quotes Psalm ninety-five, verse eleven, as the basis for the rest that remains for the people of God. And this rest is always addressed in this passage as God's rest. If you look at chapter three, verse eleven, in the, the end of that long quotation from Psalm 95, it says, So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So it's the rest of God, right? My rest, here's God speaking. And it may not make sense to you yet, but keep that in mind that most of the time, or if not all the time that this passage speaks, speaks of God's rest. It does that again in verse 18 of chapter 3, where he says, and to whom did he swear that they should not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? Again, the idea of rest here, this rest that's being entered is a, God, is a rest that belongs to God, or is engineered by God, or created by God. It says again in chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, since a, a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. In verse 3 again, God's rest for he who have believed do enter that rest, as he has said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. If it's not yet clear, in verse 5, again, it says it's God's rest. And again, in this place, they shall not enter my rest. And then one last time in verse 11, let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest. What rest? The rest that we've been talking about, God's rest. So here we have in this passage, uh, filled with the idea of God's rest. And God's rest is identified as his resting from his complete creative work. If you look at verses 3 and 4, the second half of verse 3 says... Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. So the rest that the, the, the author Hebrews speaks of is the rest from God's creative work, the complete creative work of God. And this is not just the absence of activity. But it's God standing there and receiving the glory of the completeness of his uh, work. And from the very beginning, God has called man to partake with him in this rest. He has invited man to come and partake with him of this rest that contemplates the work of God. That we're to join God on the Sabbath day in resting from our worldly activity so that we can contemplate what God has been doing and has done 
in creation and everything else, and as we're going to see, also in redemption, because that's part of God's work. However, man, humanity, will not enter into God's rest because of sin. In verse 5, the author says, and again, in this place, they shall not enter my rest. So God had created the, the, the seventh day. He himself rested. He invited men to join in that rest with him. And then humanity did, um, refused to do so because of sin. Uh, a Walter Chantry in his book called The Sabbath of Delight says this. He says, God's rest was complete from the beginning of the world. Man was called to enter that rest with God from the seventh day of creation. Yet because of sin, rebellion, hardness of heart, and unbelief, man did not enter it. Men have come short of God's rest because of the fall. And from the very beginning, since the fall, humanity has been fighting this idea of God's rest, of resting with God, contemplating what God has done because of sin. It's a matter of rebellion, the author here of Hebrews 4 tells us, that we uh, are unwilling to join God in this rest. We don't want to obey Him and, and in rebellion uh, because of the fall. But despite man's rebellion, as illustrated here uh, you know, by the story of the people in the wilderness, there are still some that will enter into God's rest. In verse 6 of chapter 4, it says, Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. So the offer of rest is still there. The idea that some are going to enter that rest is still there, even though humanity has re- rebelled. And the example that he gives of that rebellion is those, the Israelites in the wilderness for those 40 years that rebelled against God. And that is why in David's day, God calls man again to enter into his rest. In verses 7 and 8, the author says, Again, he designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, after such a long time, as it has been said, Today, if you will hear his voice and not harden your hearts, for if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. Do you, do you see the argument that the author is making here? So here we have uh, God promised a rest to the people of God, and the promised land was a type of that, typify, typify that, signify that, was supposed to be an example of that rest. And yet, even though after Joshua took the people of God into the promised land and they conquered all the land, a thousand years later, David still says, there's a rest that remains. So entering the promised land did not fulfill the fourth commandment, did not fulfill the promise of rest, did not fulfill all that God was planning in the idea of rest. So long after the Canaanites entered the prom- the Israelites entered the, the land of Canaan, the promised land, David speaks, Canaan was not the ultimate rest promised by God. God's promised rest is entered by believing the gospel, as it says in verse 3. For we who have believed do enter or are entering that rest. So it was not entering the promised land, but is entering into fellowship with God. That is the ultimate rest that God speaks by faith. And we are entering that rest. It's interesting that there, even though in the King, New King James says, for we who are, have believed do enter that rest in verse 3, the idea is a continuing action. We are entering that rest. We are in the process of entering that rest with Christ. 
in all of this so that we could arrive at verses 9 and 10. So we're building the argument here. We have this rest that's God's. It was not the entering the promised land. There's a rest that remains. It's entered by faith. We're entering that rest, and it's the rest of God. And then we get to verses 9 and 10. But before we go there, any questions before we continue? All right, so verses 9 and 10 are actually the basis or a a very good indication that we have a Christian Sabbath, that the fourth commandment is still valid for us today, and that we are to observe it according to the scriptures, and that that day is no longer the seventh day, but the first day of the week. So, So verse 9 says... There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered his rest has himself also seized from his works as God did from his. All right. The word rest is used 12 times between verse, chapter 3, verse 11, through chapter 4, verse 11. So in the space of these verses, 12 times the word rest is used. So I think we can um, rightly conclude that that's important in this passage. And that may actually be the main point of this passage. Now, this is where we're going to get a little technical, okay? Almost every time the English word rest is used in this passage, it translates the same Greek noun or verb, the related Greek noun or verb. And that's the word katapausen. So... 11 times of the 12, when the word rest is used in English, it's translated either the verb or the noun, katapausen. There's one time that's not the case. One time the word rest translates a different Greek word in this, in this chapter, in this con- context, and that is in verse 9. In our translation it says, There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. That word rest in the original language is different than all the other words. And that's the Greek word sabbatismos. Now, this is the only time up to this point in history, to the point, the time where the chapter 4 Hebrews was written, that this word was used in Greek. It's not found in any other Greek literature not up to this time. So, unless, no, maybe there's some that hasn't been described, uh, discovered yet that includes this word uh, but this noun is only used to, this, to our knowledge to this point in history when, first, when Hebrews was first written this is the only time it's ever used uh, which complicates things a bit in trying to figure out what the meaning of the word is because I don't know if you know that but uh, words are the meaning of a word is decided by comparing how it's used right wasn't there a heavenly dictionary that God handed out to people saying, here, that's how you know the meaning of words. No, we compare the meaning and try to figure out how the word means and then create a dictionary from that. So dictionaries are not prescriptive. They are what? They're descriptive. They describe how a word is used. So when you come to a word that's only used once, oh, how are you going to compare it? Well, in God's good providence, the noun is only used this time. But the verb is all over the Old Testament. The action word is all over the Old Testament. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, you've heard the name Septuagint. 
The Septuagint is an ancient translation of the Old Testament. It's really the translation that the church in the first century, the apostolic church, used. Remember that by the time that you come to the 400s, by the time the people come back from the Babylonian captivity, they don't speak Hebrew anymore. When they come back, they speak Aramaic. And you see that even in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8, when Ezra preaches and he reads from the scroll of the law, likely Deuteronomy, they have to have Levites all over the place explaining to people what those words mean, not only in the sense of, uh, of uh, giving them an explanation of the meaning of the passage, but translating it to Aramaic so people can understand. And by the time the 300s come, the, the people of God, the Jews that hadn't come back to Jerusalem, they don't, they don't even speak Aramaic anymore. They speak Greek. And why is the case? Why is that the case? Why does most of the world speak Greek at this time? Because of Alexander, right? The great. You know, if a, if a, a history calls a person the great, it should pay attention to them. If they call themselves the great, they don't disregard. But history calls themselves uh, the great, then you pay attention. And Alexander uh, had uh, his goal to create one huge Greek city. He wanted the whole known world to be one huge Greek city. And he understood that what keeps a culture together is language. It's speaking the same language that keeps an ethnic group together. So he forced everybody to learn Greek. So all these Jews living in what's called the diaspora, in the, they spread throughout the world, Jews, were Greek-speaking. So in order to be able to have the word of God in the way they could understand, uh, the Jews in Alexandria, no, Alexandria is in today's Egypt, yes, and, and northern Egypt, and uh, commissioned a translation of the, the Old Testament. And there is a legend, of, of, of a myth, maybe, is a better way to say, uh, that, well, say a legend, because who knows if it's true or not, uh, uh, that when that was commissioned, 70 men were given the first five books of the, of the Bible, so Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, were putting 70 different, it was actually 72, but 70 different rooms, and they by themselves translated from Hebrew into Greek, and when they came out, every single one of their translations was the same as the other. That's very unlikely that happened. But the result was a very, very, very accurate translation of the first five books of law. Now, so it became known as the Septuagint because 70, and sometimes we're going to say LXX, which is 70 in Roman numeral, 70, according to the legend, created that translation. All that to say that a lot of the quotations in the New Testament are from that Greek translation, not from the original Hebrew, especially in the book of Hebrews. And in the Septuagint, which is that Greek translation of the Old Testament, every time that the verb is used, the, the verb to rest, or the verb based on this word that we have here, every time the verb is used, it translates the Hebrew word that means to keep the Sabbath. For example, in Leviticus 23.32, it says, It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict your souls on the ninth day of the month at evening, from evening to evening. And here is our word. This is one word in, in, in 
in the Septuagint. You shall celebrate your Sabbath. That's the verb for this word rest in Hebrews 4.9. Leviticus 23, 34, and 35 says, Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate and you are in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. That's though our one bird related to the noun in Hebrews 4, 9. All right. So we have an example of people really close to the original language telling us what that word means. And the word, the verb means keep the Sabbath, enjoy the Sabbath, observe the Sabbath, celebrate the Sabbath. All of this idea of what the fourth commandment tells us. Okay, are you with me so far? I told you it's going to get a little technical, but it's worth it, okay? Because we're called to delight in this in Isaiah 58, so it should be, bring us some joy here. Since every word, every single word was inspired by the Holy Spirit, it is very important that in a context where another word had been used repeatedly, all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit changes the word in verse 9. Twelve times he refers to rest. Eleven times he uses the same word, or the same word group. And then, boom, on this one he changes the word. That tells us something, and we should uh, evaluate that carefully. So verse 9 should read this way. There remains, therefore, a Sabbath observance for the people of God. Not just a rest, but a Sabbath observance for the people of God. This passage not only establishes that there is a new covenant Sabbath, that there remains a Sabbath observance of the people of God, but that it tells us what that day should be. Look at verse 10. For he who has entered his rest has himself also seized from his works as God did from his. Now, who, has, who is reading from the New King James and the ESV? New King James ESV, okay. All right. The rest of you are just not reading, right? No. Uh, you're going to notice that the first he is little h. There. I think that that is an inaccurate interpretation. You know that in the original language there's no capitals. or Well, it's either all capitals or all littles. So when you find capitals and so on in our English text, it's interpretation of the original. I think that's a misinterpretation. That should be a capital H as well. I think the rest... The, the verse talks about Christ entering into his rest. The context requires that. Every member earlier on said, keep in mind, we're going to see how all the rests are the rest of God. Every other time the rest is mentioned is the rest of God. This would be the only time where it would be the rest of men that's mentioned here. And notice here in verse 10 that the he has already entered the rest. Do you see that there? In verse 10, he who has entered his rest. And yet, in verse 3, we're told that we are entering, continue, we're in the process of entering that rest. Where the he, in verse 10, has already entered that, that rest. is a completed action from the perspective of the author of Hebrews. 
And then look at verse 10 and says that for he who has entered his rest has himself also seized from his work as God did from his. This person entering the rest, whoever this is, has done the kind of works that's compared to the works of God. Do you see that there? That's the comparison there. And that leads us to, should lead us to, uh, to ask ourselves, what dead work done by man could be equated with God's creative work? It seems inconsistent to do that here. Another thing, from chapter 3, verse 7, to chapter 4, verse 11, the writer refers to believers in the plural. We all know what the plural is, right? More than one. So we, us, they, them, and so on. You, y'all, that's another uh, pronoun for plural. So he's been referring to believers as plural. Look at verse 1, chapter 4, 1. It says, since a promise remains to, of entering his rest, let us fear. In chapter, three, verse, in chapter 4, verse 3, for we who have believed. In chapter 4, verse 11, let us, therefore. And yet in verse 10, the writer uses the singular pronoun he, which suggests that this individual who has entered his rest is not the same as the people of God. It's we, and then there is he. Different. So, and back to the idea of completeness. The rest of verse 10, the rest of verse 10 has already been entered. Right, he has entered that. But verse 11 says believers are still to enter into his rest. Verse 10 says, For he who has entered his rest has himself also seized from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest. He has entered, we have not. You see the contrast there? So, Verse 10, then, is the reason for the Sabbath observance that remains. Because it's speaking of Christ entering his rest. And because Christ has entered his rest, and we are entering that rest, we continue to observe the Sabbath as pointing to exactly that. The work of God, but now it's the work of God the Son in redeeming his people. And this understanding then creates a parallel between the works of creation and the works of redemption. In the Old Testament, the people of God worked and then rested based on the creation pattern and looking forward to what Christ, what God is going to do for them. Under the New Covenant, the people of God first rest and then work looking back to what God has done for them in the life, death, and resurrection, ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Sabbath day has always pointed to God's completed work, signified by rest. In the Old Covenant, God's creative work. In the New Covenant, God's redeeming work. And you know what? That's actually hinted in the actual statement of the Fourth Commandment. In Exodus 20... The reason given for why one should keep the Sabbath is that God created all things. In, in, Gen, in Deuteronomy 5, the reason for the keeping of the fourth commandment is that God redeemed his people from slavery. Creation and redemption. 
both aspects that remain true even today. And when did Christ enter his rest? On the first day of the week, as he rose from the dead, conquering death, entered the, the Holy of Holies with his own blood and atoned for the sins of his people. And the apostolic church understood this change and started observing the New Testament Sabbath, the New Covenant Sabbath of deliverance on the first day of the week. Because that's the day that Christ entered into his rest. So that's the day we celebrate the Christian Sabbath. The same way that the Old Covenant celebrated on the seventh day because that's the day that God rested from creation. Christ rested from his work of salvation on the first day of the week. And that's why we celebrate on that day. Any questions on that? Linda. I have a question about verse 10. Uh, his works. Mm-hmm. Should that, is that Jesus, right? Correct. So it should be capitalized. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. I tend to not, you know, when I, that's just my, me personally, Linda, I, when I'm writing things, mm-hmm. I don't capitalize pronouns or like that. But yes, if you're going to follow that pattern, then all the he and he is in that verse should all be capitalized. Jonas. So we have Hebrews. How did the early church know to worship on Sunday? Because they had Jesus. I mean, remember, Jesus appeared to them on the first day of the week several times. So the resurrection, first day of the week. First appearances to him, first day of the week, when they should be gathered. Remember, Thomas Thomas is scolded for not having been gathered when they should be gathered. Pentecost on that first year, on the first century, was on the first day of the week. The coming of the Spirit and power was on the first day of the week. So the pattern was established. The church understood that. They were led by the apostles. So that first generation didn't quite necessarily need the New Testament because the apostles were right there telling them what to do. And as the apostles started fading away, then the Holy Spirit committed their teachings to writing. Heather? Yes. And were they meeting every day? Or no? Yes, and yes, and maybe. Okay. okay. Remember that, think of the, the time frame of the book of Acts, which is from the ascension of Christ to the imprisonment of, of Paul in Rome. So 30 AD to 64 AD, so it's about 34 years. That's a transitional period where you have things of the Old Covenant fading away and things of New Covenant coming into play. So uh, it's likely that Christians went to the synagogue till they were forced not to be there anymore. For example, in the book of James, which is the earliest written book of the New Testament, the first one in the 40, early 40s, the word church is not used, the word synagogue, when you gather in the synagogue. Right? So there's that transitioning. Paul himself took... Old Testament vows. Remember how he's arrested at the temple when he's going to fulfill a vow there? And yet, he tells Titus and Timothy, you can't be they're circumcised. So there's that transition period that is going on there. But even the book of Acts, you see, chapter 20 is a pivotal chapter in the book of Acts, where up to that point, you have miracles and apostles being kind of what drove the, drove the church. In 20, you have a shifting from miracles and apostles to elders and preaching. And you see that 
in, in, in the history of Acts there. Does it make sense? Okay. Any other questions? Linda. Oh, we have time. Okay. Verse 4-1, uh, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering mm -hmm. his rest, could that, is his rest, the completed work, also include eternity? So his, this, his rest here is, is, um, is everything, but I think the focus is in eternity. The same way that the people of God in the Old Testament were led by God into the promised land, which they rebelled and ended up losing, right? That's the pattern that we're following. We, as the people of God, are promised eternity with him. In a physical existence, like the meek shall inherit the earth, uh, the, the promises made to Abraham are still valid, and, and they, they, they refer to actual physical land promises as well. And we are children of Abraham, so those are going to come to pass at one point, and that's the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's, and that's why I say, hey, those people had the same promises, and in verse 2 and 3 says, they heard the same gospel as you're hearing, and they rebelled. So let their example be a warning to you so that you can persevere to the end. That, that's the point there. Does it make sense? Okay. Any other questions? I only have one thing left. It's a long quote, but I think it's going to be helpful. So don't be afraid if you have questions, okay? So I, I want to read a, a long quote from a man by the name of Gerhardus Voss. And it's from his book, Biblical Theology of Old and New Testaments. Okay? And um, so bear with me. I'll try to do my best in reading this and pausing so that we understand. Voss says, In as much as the Old Covenant was still looking forward to the performance of the messianic work, naturally the days of labor to it came first. The day of rest falls at the end of the week. Because, see what he's saying here? That in the old covenant, they're looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. So work first, rest at the end. We, under the new covenant, look back upon the accomplished work of Christ we therefore first celebrate the rest in principle procured by Christ, although the Sabbath also still remains a sign looking forward to the final eschatological rest. Scatology is the study of the last things, right? Future things, things that are still going to happen from our time, usually events of the return of, around the return of Christ. So there is this aspect. So in the Lord's Day, the Christian Sabbath, Sunday, we look, we're in the beginning of the week, because now we're looking back at the work of Christ. But with everything in the New Covenant, there's also a looking forward. Not just backwards, but forward into the second coming of Christ. And that rest that we're still going to enter that we mentioned just a minute ago. Think of the Lord's Supper. Isn't that true of the Lord's Supper as well? Remember the command? Do this and remember to me. And then what says next? Till I come. So do this, remembers me, backwards, till I come, forwards. Titus 2, 11 through 13, Paul's teaching Titus, says that, that the grace of God has, appearing, has appeared, teaching us some things, because of the blessed hope of the resurrection. So we have the grace of God appearing to us, looking backwards, pushing us to behave in a certain way. And then we have the grace of God that's going to come at the coming of Jesus Christ, 
pulling us. So our faith is always backwards and forwards. Historical and eschatological. And that's what the Sabbath is as well. We are a quarter of the way through the quote. Should have brought the book. Um, the Old Testament people of God had to typify in their life the future developments of redemption. Consequently, the precedence of labor and the consequence of rest had to find expression in their calendar. The New Testament church has no typical function to perform. I mean, typical doesn't mean, we use the word typical as usual, things that we usually do. Typical here is a theological way of saying that uh, something is pointing to something else. The Old Testament, the entirety, everything that people did, everything that people was prescribed to do, every sacrifice, every observance, everything was pointing forward to the coming of Christ. So everything typified the new covenant. Remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians, everything is he has in amen in Christ. So everything has been fulfilled. We don't need to typify anything. Right? We're, not, we're not signifying anything in the future. But it has a great historic event to commemorate, the performance of the work of Christ by the entrance of him and of his people through him upon the state of never-ending rest. So we don't typify, we commemorate what Christ has done. We do not sufficiently realize the profound sense the early church had of the epoch-making significance of the appearance, especially of the resurrection of the Messiah. The letter was to them nothing less than the bringing in of a new, the second creation. Remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5? Behold, uh, if you're in Christ, you're what? A new creation. All things, behold, all things, all things that pass away, behold, all things are what? Made new. And they felt that this ought to find expression in the placing of the Sabbath with reference to the other days of the week. Believers knew themselves in a measure partakers of the Sabbath fulfillment. In the one creation required one sequence, then the other required another. One creation, the original creation, created then rest. The new creation, the redemption through the blood of Christ, first rest, then work. It has been strikingly observed that our Lord died on the eve of the Jewish Sabbath, right? He died late afternoon on a Friday. Sabbath starting at sundown on that day. At the end of these typical weeks of labor by which his work and his consummation were prefigured, and Christ entered upon his rest so that the Jewish Sabbath comes to lie between, it was, as it were, disposed of, buried in his grave. And he rose again at the end of the Sabbath, the next day after the Sabbath, which is interesting um, it doesn't, uh, that Matthew, and especially Luke, called that day the first of the Sabbaths, which was a Jewish way of, of, of talking about the days of the week, the first of the Sabbath, the sec from, uh, second of the Sabbath, and so on, referring to this. But Luke wasn't a Jew, he was a Gentile. And yet he uses that terminology, that Jesus rose on the first of the Sabbaths. And so we see an acknowledgement of the apostolic church that what we do on the Lord's Day is actually observing the Sabbath, the Christian Sabbath, because of the redemptive work of Christ. Any questions? 
Hannah. If you still do that prehistoric act of buying a paper calendar, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, but I do think mentally we should not think of Sunday as part of the weekend, but the beginning of the week. And, you know, it might be helpful. You can set your phone calendar, either a week starting on Sunday or starting on Monday, and you can, you know, do that with little things that can help, help you remember that. Rene? So does the Sabbath start on Saturday night? N- no. Uh, the, so the New Testament was not necessarily unified on timekeeping. Like some of the Gospels keep the Jewish time from sundown to um, not whatever the sun does on the other side. Sunrise, yes. Uh, the Gospel of John doesn't. It keeps the Roman time of 24-hour Day. So that's not specific, is that whatever, this, whatever the first day of the week is, that's where it is. And however that's reckoned, that's how you reckon it. Any, any other questions? Just, Andrew. Were you saying that, that it's culturally defined? Yes. About yes. when we think of our day starting? Yes. So it's our culture. Not, not personally, but culturally. Culturally. No, like... A, I don't think we are free as individuals to decide my first day is Wednesday. Does that make sense? But however the, the culture thinks of a day, that's how we should <coughs> use to determine how we do things too. And yet, yes, Keith. As a member of the silent generation. <laughs> <laughs> I, re- I thought you were a member of the great generation. No, the silent, that's right, yes. I can remember when most businesses were closed on Sunday. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. But, Keith, one thing to keep in mind, at least in the entertainment business, the hospitality business, or restaurants, and so on, Sundays tend to be primarily. Uh, not necessarily here because demographics, Christians were, were but in the southeast, uh, what keeps business going on Sundays is Christians. So we don't, I, I don't think we have to have Sabbath laws if the church is just faithful to uh, what it's supposed to do because it's just supply and demand in a lot of ways. Jonas. On verse 10, the word whoever, why is it such a generic word when, when it refer, and then it refers to his work as in Christ. Because remember, as I said, the New King James or, or the SV, if that's what you're reading there, is assuming that this is not Christ. And I'm, I'm saying, well, when you actually look in the context, okay. it's, it's, it's Christ. That's why they say whoever. Okay, so you're saying It's not accurate with the context. Okay. The word could be translated whoever that's there. It. It's just a, what's called a, uh, a relative pronoun. Okay. Anybody wants to have the last question or the last word, or can we close in prayer? So not next week because it's a Christmas program, but uh, whenever we have Sunday school again that I'm teaching, which would be actually three or four weeks from today because we don't have 
We won't have, we have the Christmas program on the 18th. We will not have Sunday school on the 25th. And then on the 1st, Andrew's teaching on the 4th chapter of Trusting God. So the second Sunday of January, when we come back, then we're going to go back to the confession. Katie's looking at Andrew and said, What? <laughs> yeah, and then, and then um, on the second Sunday of January, we'll come back to chapter 21 of the confession that's going to start talking about how, how we observe the Lord's Day. So, okay, that's the plan. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you that you're good to us. We thank you for giving us a day in which that we can um, set aside everything else and focus on what you've done for us in Christ. Help us to rejoice in it. Help us to call it a delight. Even as we worship you in the following hour, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.